Hey, this is Sayyam Botani and you're listening to Chai Time Data Science, a podcast for data science enthusiasts where I interview practitioners, researchers and cagglers about their journey, experience and talk all things about data science. Welcome to another episode of the Chai Time Data Science Show. In this episode, I interview Tim Detmers, a PhD student at the University of Washington, who's working on representation learning and neuro-inspired and hardware-optimized deep learning. Tim has a background in computer science along with software engineering experience. In this interview, we talk about deep learning research, what a deep learning research pipeline looks like. We also discuss about Tim's recent publication on sparse learning, sparse networks from scratch, faster training without losing performance is the title of the preprint. We also discussed deep learning hardware, Kaggle, and Tim shares many great pieces of advice about getting a break into deep learning research. I really enjoyed uh, doing this interview with Tim. Uh, Tim has been kind enough to share many great advices about deep learning and deep learning research. Please enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. I am talking to Tim Detmers today. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thank you for having me. So uh, you're currently a PhD student at the University of Washington and you have a background Mm -hmm. in computer science. Could you tell us what uh, made you pick deep learning as a career path and how you got started in deep learning? Yeah, so I got started uh, by doing Coursera classes. Um, I was doing Endring's uh, machine learning class and then Jeff Sinton uh, deep learning class. Okay. And that got me really interested into deep learning. And um, yeah, um, picking deep learning as a career path, that's a bit different uh, question. So mm-hmm. I like to uh, pursue a strategy of uh, exploring my interests uh, like in a depth first session. Uh, uh, um, uh, yeah, um, um, fashion, and um, so uh, for BFS me, versus BFS for you. Uh, pardon? It's so it's a depth first search versus a breadth first search for you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, some people they like to explore different kind of areas, get a feeling what is interesting to them, and then specialize that versus sort generalize, of generalize versus specialize. Yes, yes. Okay. And uh, I'm I'm more specializing, and uh, my background was actually a bit bit weird, I would say. So I started out in uh, philosophy. I was really interested in philosophy. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, I got frustrated with that. I moved on to psychology. Then okay. I moved on to statistics, then neuroscience, then machine learning, and then deep learning. And when I came to deep learning, it was like, I felt like all these other areas, um, they were like all combined sort of in deep learning. Right. And uh, yeah, so so you have machine learning, learning from data, so learning about features. That's that's uh, core part of deep learning. Uh, you have statistics, which is also a core part of deep learning. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in neuroscience and um, neuroscience and deep learning. They're a bit distant uh, in media. They like to make it close. It's not that <laughs> close, but I like to take inspiration from neuroscience, and uh, that makes it very interesting to me. 
uh, also psychology uh, is more like um, the first research in neural networks was really motivated from psychology, right. understanding the cognition uh, of humans and how is it represented. And there were like two views, like one logical view, more one distributed representation, connectionism. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, really uh, the concept of deep learning is also well-rooted in psychology. Okay. And yeah, so yeah, and philosophy helps, I think in any field really. And so if you combine all of that, then that sort of makes deep learning. And um, yeah, I don't know, when I found deep learning, it was really exciting. And I felt like, yeah, I want to do this for a very long time. And okay. uh, so, yeah, at some point, um, uh, yeah, I just stuck with deep learning. Gotcha. And uh, could you tell us like, uh, what made you pick the research part? So currently you, uh, you're enrolled as a PhD student. So, Yes. Um, so I have had some experience in industry. Mm-hmm. I was working as a software engineer when I discovered deep learning. Right. And um, at that time, I was also a bit frustrated with being a software engineer um, <laughs> because it wasn't so challenging anymore. Okay. So uh, one thing that is um, important for me is uh, the concept of exhausting my potential. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can exhaust your pen- potential in many areas, but in terms of work, it means to me that uh, I need to do something that I'm good at. Um, I need to to be able to improve myself constantly. Keep challenging yourself. Yes, and uh, the main goal is really to, can you reach a barrier where you say, this is too difficult and I cannot improve anymore. And yeah. yes, as a software engineer, I didn't really feel that. I was limited, but not because of my ability, more about um, yeah, the, the problems. At some point, they become a bit rep- repetitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, yeah, there, there are variations, but the core of it is sometimes repetitive. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, it depends always like on the job. There's some yeah. software engineering jobs where you can get very much in details. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I could imagine if you're doing work on like very low level stuff at Google, there's yeah. so much things to optimize, so much things to know about and improve. That That's probably interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, um, for me, um, I wanted to change. And um, so what I did is uh, I accumulated enough money to uh, afford a bachelor and then I did my bachelor studies and on the side sort of did, did deep learning research. Okay. Um, I couldn't find an advisor at that time so, so I did deep learning research on my own but okay. I quickly felt that I really was enjoying this and I just wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, later I made more experiences in industry at Microsoft research which is a bit more research environment, uh, but I could feel that the thinking, the ideas are constrained by applications. Mm-hmm. So um, if you work at Microsoft Research, then a core part is also, um, is what you're working on, is it useful for Microsoft? Okay. And you can feel that. And mm-hmm. so currently in academia as a PhD student, I have much more freedom and I'm really enjoying that. And right. currently I'm really seeing myself in academia and not in industry. It's just a thing about 
having the freedom to work on ideas that you like to work on and also to challenge yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm curious, like, could you tell us what does a day in the life of a researcher, maybe your life look like, what problems are you currently working on? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I, th- I think um, the life, everyday life of, of a researcher differs quite a bit between researchers mm-hmm. because it's very dependent on research environment. It's very dependent on the research project. Yeah. Um, and also very dependent on the phase in uh, which you're in, in the research project. Mm-hmm. Uh, but generally, I'm, I'm an early bird. I go early to work. I do my best work in the morning. And okay. so most of the work is programming prototypes, doing experiments, mm-hmm. um, reading papers, um, writing drafts. Um, and um, I like to do these activities in the morning and in the afternoon I usually um, have discussion, discussions with my advisor, with colleagues, mm-hmm. meetings. Um, yeah, and then, then there are some, especially in the first and second year of your PhD, there will be homework, there will be classwork. <laughs> and um, yeah, I try to push that to the afternoon okay. and, and emails and ad- administrative stuff. Uh, yeah, that's, that's sort of my routine. Okay, got it. And uh, I'm curious, like, how does your research pipeline look like? And could you tell us, like, how do you approach a new problem? So, for example, uh, when you think of a problem, where does the inspiration come yeah. from? And what questions do you ask? Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that's a very good question. Um, and it's a very difficult problem. Uh, I don't think I have, like, the perfect answer how to do research. But there are certain steps which are important to think about. Um, I think the first step really is to think about what kind of problems are you interested in Hmm. intrinsically. So you can work on problems, but in research, you almost always will hit roadblocks. Hmm. It will get difficult. Things will fail. And you need to be able to keep up the motivation. You need to be able to keep working on the problem. And if you're not really, really interested in something, um, that will be a problem. Um, yeah, you need to stay motivated. And so the first filter for ideas is really, you need to ask yourself, is this kind of idea in- interesting enough to me to keep working on it? And I think that's, that's really the first thing that you should think about. The ne- next thing is really uh, about what kind of project you work on, the idea of a project. Right. And... Um, just sitting down and thinking about ideas is often very difficult. Um, yeah. I mean, creative process is more dynamic. It's more like um, you're working on a project and suddenly you get an idea for another project while mm-hmm. you, I don't know, attend a talk or you just have some some thoughts here and there. Maybe going and, to um, you get, get an idea sometimes. Yes, yes. And mm-hmm. um, so... Also, when you're reading stuff, um, maybe you're still working on a project, but uh, something pops in your head and then, yep. then write it down. So um, it's more like um, when you finish your project, um, you should, the best, is, the best option is to have already like some ideas that, that are interesting to you. I mean, if you really sit down hmm. and think about ideas, um, then it's like important to keep in mind that the creative process sort of killed by structure. Um, you need some 
relaxation. It's like you cannot sit down yeah. and think really hard and have a eureka moment. It's more mm-hmm. like you need, uh, and that's also what psychology research says, you need the expertise, you need to read a yeah. lot. But once you've done that and you thought hard, you need to take a break, mm-hmm. relax. Your brain does all these things um, unconsciously in the back of your mind. Yeah. And at some point you make these associations and suddenly you have an idea. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's important to not to be too hard on yourself, how to get these ideas. Um, I think of um, as not creative, but it does involve a lot of creative thinking also. So many people do miss out on that, that you need to be creative when you're working on a new problem. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, actually, I'm, I'm uh, currently writing also a blog post about creativity in academia. Um, yeah, um, it's, it's, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to think about, difficult thing to talk about. I think mm-hmm. often people are beating themselves up for not being creative. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't know um, if, if, if that is true. I think everybody can creative in their own way. I think it's also finding sort of a niche where you excel. And for me, I take a lot of ideas from neuroscience because mm-hmm. that just interests me intrinsically. I just like to do it. And then it's easier for me to bridge ideas from neuroscience to deep learning. Okay. And for other people, there might be different areas, different interests. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there shouldn't be too much force. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, m- more on that fl- maybe in my blog post. Um, uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, if you move on in the research pipeline, so mm-hmm. once you've got ideas, it's important to evaluate those ideas, which, are, which ideas are good, which ideas are bad. Sort of and, a reality check for them. Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, I mean, one thing, if you do a reality check is, uh, I like to separate it in two things. One is, which is actually very important, but not many people think about it, is the question, can this project fail? Mm-hmm. Can this project fail fast? Mm-hmm. When you get an idea, the most time that you can waste on is an idea that doesn't work. Yeah. And, um, or, or, or rather an idea which is unclear how you can show that it doesn't work. So mm-hmm. idea that doesn't work, but you cannot show it. And but then how, you can work you on this idea. For example, in machine learning, nothing works until it does. So like, how do you yes. know that this experiment yes. has a potential or maybe I'm like just pushing too hard? Yes. Um, so when you're still in the idea phase, you can think about the simplest experiment which can refute the idea. Mm-hmm. And often it's very simple. Often you can say, okay, if this doesn't work on MNIST, then it will not work on ImageNet. It will not work on Cypher. <laughs> then the idea is sort of doomed. Yeah. I mean, people say everything works on MNIST and that's kind of true. I mean, there's a degree how well it works, um, but, uh, and you want to be competitive with other methods. Yeah. But once you went through MNIST, uh, you want to move on to a more difficult task. Mm-hmm. And so it's more like an iterative step, make it, more, more difficult over time okay. and test it over time. But when you think an idea, it should already be very clear how you can refute the idea. Correct. So if, if your idea is too general and you cannot have a test like this, mm-hmm. then it's probably not a good idea. 
Got it, it should be testable. Yeah. Okay. And um, another important thing to do this reality check is really is the idea impactful. Um, mm. So if everything works out, so let's say all the experiments show perfect results, would yeah. people care? Would it move research forward? Mm -hmm. And um, the best way to really check that, in my opinion, is to do a short, rough write-up of your idea. Write an abstract, write an introduction, write right. an abstract with like imaginative results with like you imagine up results, what could be realistic yeah. and think about how you could write it. And uh, once you've done that, I think you have a much, you are much, um, it's much easier to evaluate. Is this story significant? Are these results with this kind of motivation? Are they interesting? Move there, does it move research forward? And um, so once you have like managed to do this and it sort of looks promising, then you can add a little, little bit more details about the method, then send it to a colleague. And okay. a colleague uh, often can quickly say, uh, um, if I look at this, there's this detail, it doesn't make sense to me. Or um, uh, look, there's this problem, how are you gonna solve this? I think you overlooked this. Mm -hmm. And um, that way you can quickly like um, make your idea robust. And so before you get started on the project, you already know like kind of um, this is maybe a bit risky, but it's impactful and I can show that it doesn't work. So you have an so, like expected result in your head after doing yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's sort of, um, I know if it, I can quickly make it fail. If, an, 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 if it doesn't fail, I know the next step, how I can make it fail. And if that doesn't fail, then I can do the next okay. step. And then I will have a very useful research result and I can, I have this motivation and I have this story and yeah. I can tell an interesting story where people say, Hey, that's, that's useful. I think that will be useful for future research. Mm -hmm. And um, so, you know, the sort of outcome, yeah. but research is always like noisy and, and, and <laughs> the mess. And so you have these milestones in between where you can say, okay, I check up, I, I, I check this, this problem and I know, okay, mm -hmm. now I can move forward. It, it has, some promise this idea okay. and um yeah so so that is i already talked basically about the next step it's just experimentation mm -hmm. and you have in mind already like some experiments where you can make your project fail yeah because because you of the just, milestones you have those projects uh, in mind experiments in mind yeah yeah uh, i mean if you if you have an idea how to make your project fail you usually also have the experiments how to do that um usually you need to adjust things a little bit here and there it's not all set into stone mm -hmm. uh, i think it's a bit too complicated for that but you get an idea you get a rough idea and as you do the experimentation you can see uh, oh maybe that was not the right way uh, i get some data but it's unclear if, if this is good or not let's mm -hmm. try something else uh, sometimes this is just indicated to try something more difficult, difficult, more difficult task to get more precise data on how well your idea performs. And I guess of. you get an intuition, like after failing so many experiments, you start to get an intuition that, okay, this maybe isn't delivering on the results, for example. Yes. Yes. Um, I mean, it's always difficult. Um, 
mean when something fails, you do not abandon the entire project usually. Mm-hmm. Usually you say, okay, what I thought about this method doesn't work. Let's change it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Then you change it a little bit, t- try it again. It probably fails again. And um, I mean, you can go on and on with this forever. And um, it's difficult to say when is it enough? When, when you say, um, okay, I should continue with this or otherwise I might miss a very important idea, a very important research contribution. Or yeah. maybe um, you say to yourself, um, uh, uh, I think this, this is, I have enough evidence that it sort of doesn't work. I think it doesn't matter what kind of method, how I change my method, it will not work this idea. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult to make a hard decision there. You, okay. all, you can always miss out. You can say, oh, th- these methods probably I don't have a promise. And then a couple of weeks later, you see somebody published results with a very similar method. And uh, that can happen. Um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just difficult to that, that's get it right. Business, I, yes, I yes. And, um, I mean, that's also what I like. It's, it's just challenge. You mm-hmm. can learn with every project, adjust a little bit and try to improve and uh yeah that's that's what i enjoy and um yeah um so that is like if you have the idea if you have the results yeah. the next step is really about writing it up and you you if if you write up like already like an abstract introduction that sort of you have already a little bit of material mm-hmm. and it's not uh, too difficult to fill in the rest Yep. And usually what you want to do is you work yourself from the results uh, through the methods section, then through the introduction and uh, in the end, the abstract. And so you need to probably rework everything that you've written. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what many, uh, especially young researchers struggle with is writing the first draft. And right. this should be done really quickly. It should be really dirty and rough. Mm-hmm. And um, it can have mistakes and misunderstandings and things are not clear. The important mm-hmm. thing is just to get it down on paper. Okay. And um, if you write blog posts, it can be good training to get in this mindset of just writing down the stuff that you have, bring it on paper. And once you have that, the real writing begins. And the real writing is just rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Mm-hmm. So... Um, <laughs> You, you take this dirty draft, rewrite it, make it a bit better, rewrite it, make it a bit better, rewrite it, make it a bit better. And at some point it has enough quality where you say, okay, now I can send it to someone. So you send it to someone, they give you feedback, then you rewrite it again. Then you send it to people, you get feedback, you rewrite it again. You repeat the cycle many yep. times until you then say, now that looks good. I think it's like ready for publication. Mm-hmm. I think it's ready that we, we can submit it to somewhere. Okay. Um, usually it's a bit different. Usually people have a deadline in mind. They say, oh, in, in, in there's iClear in September, let's submit something. Uh, yeah. And then they work on something and then time runs short and what people um, usually, somewhere they need to cut the time. They need, yeah. to, need to save the time. And usually they um, spent not enough time on rewriting the draft. Mm-hmm. And what that does to your work is um, it's less clear, yeah. which is really bad. And 
often, which is also important, the story, the impact of your research idea is not very clear. And mm -hmm. so you might have good results, but people are not really understanding it. And people think, uh, okay, what's, what's the deal about it? You have good results. What does it mean in the future? And um, it's not clear for people, yeah, um, how your work fits in. So, yeah, I don't like the idea of deadlines, but it's like a necessary evil, I guess. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So for, for I, I think clarity uh, is more important to like have a clear, uh, crystal clear explanation of, of the research. Yes, I mean, I, I like to, I like my research to be useful. And um, if you did already the experimentation, found the ideas and so forth and so forth, you have the results and they're good, mm -hmm. then, then you've done already the hardest work. Um, yeah the most risky work, the work where you can fail uh, the most. In rewriting your paper, you cannot really fail. You can only fail to do it not enough. Yep. So not invest too much time. And mm -hmm. so it's a very simple process, um, which just takes a lot of effort and um, yeah. um, you need to get a lot of feedback, but it's not so complicated mm -hmm. and it's safe. You, you, nobody can take away the results, sort of. Yeah. I mean, someone can give you bad feedback and that puts your paper in a bad light, but you can work around that and try to frame your work differently. <laughs> and um, yeah, I think it's just researchers, um, they sell themselves short by not doing that enough. Um, yeah, I, I like a paper that is easy to read, clear, mm -hmm. and that's a good story. Okay. Um, I, I had and, Andrew Trask on the interview series. He also mentioned like about this for writing blog posts that you think of an idea, you keep distilling it until it becomes clear and then you send it for feedback. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and blog posts, it's, it's a very similar process. I mean, yeah. the most part you should really spend on rewriting, rewriting, mm -hmm. make it clearer and better and better. And at some point it's good enough to, you can like collect feedback. Um, yeah, on, on blog posts, I usually don't get so much feedback. Uh, it's, it's just, um, um, I'm a huge fan by the way of your complete blog posts. I've read all of them. I'll have them linked in the description. Oh, thanks. Viewers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think blog posts are also a bit more personal. So, um, you can send people, your blog post for feedback, yep. but um, I like if a blog post sounds a bit weird or is has some mistakes here and there, mm -hmm. I think that's also myself, that's who I am. And I like that. So um, uh, I like to keep my style in my blog posts. One thing I, I enjoy, it. Uh, like it's, blog posts in my experience are easier to read than a research paper and like especially yes. someone writes a blog post about a research paper it's like very easy to uh, digest that compared to reading the paper yes yes um yeah uh, for for my newspaper i also wrote a blog post and yeah for me it was actually quite challenging to find the right balance mm -hmm. so um the research paper is already quite limited and I would like to put more content into it and I can't. And yeah. I had like this temptation to put more content about my research into the blog post, but that would, would have made it less accessible. Mm 
And so in the end, I said, probably what is most useful is to make it very accessible to people. Um, I don't know if I succeeded, but uh, I, I tried. And it's an experience. Um, yeah, I think you get better with it uh, as you practice things. Okay. Uh, so one of your research interests that I want to talk about is hardware optimized deep learning. Uh, mm-hmm. Like how deep learning is marketed usually to folks is that hardware now is good enough to do deep learning. But could yes. you make, help us understand that why is still this an important area of research and why is hardware not good enough in your opinion yet? Yes, uh, I think the main, the main problem there is really um, the future. And um, so deep learning hardware is currently uh, pretty good, pretty well optimized. Mm-hmm. But the problem is really uh, we are hitting the physical limits of computing. Um, soon, uh, our transistors will almost be the size of like a couple of atoms. Mm-hmm. And you cannot make it smaller any more than that. <laughs> you cannot go smaller than atoms. We don't know how to do it. Yeah. And so GPUs will not get much smaller. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still a couple of iterations, but they're so difficult because quantum effects come into play. Yeah. And... Um, certain things on a ship like SRAM, they don't scale well when you mm-hmm. make them smaller. They have sublinear scaling. They don't get twice as fast. Okay. And now we're hitting a level where they only barely get, li- they get just a little bit faster. Yeah. And so what it means is um, if you look back the past 10 years, we got a l- lot faster GPUs. Yeah, if you look at uh, NVIDIA, for example, every iteration would have huge boost compared to the previous series. Yes, it's yes. getting narrowed down. Like it's still marketed sometimes yes. as a bigger gap, but it's yes. definitely narrowing down. Yes. Um, and I think there's also important to have like, yeah, really the marketing numbers, which are often theoretical and the practical numbers. Yeah. And if you look at the last iteration of GPUs, it didn't improve so much. And uh, it's also a longer interval. Mm-hmm. And we will keep seeing that. So with the next iteration, uh, we will not get big improvements. And it will take longer until the next generation of GPUs arrives. Right. And it will repeat maybe for two more times. And then it's the end of the line. We, we cannot go smaller. Yeah. We can go to different materials. Mm-hmm. But um, we don't know how to do it. It mm-hmm. will cost dozens of billions, maybe hundreds of billions to do it will take yeah. maybe 10 years to really mm-hmm. get it to market. Yeah. Um, the current way how we manufacture ships is very, very well researched. Uh, yeah. uh, it's working really well, um, but it's now getting so difficult that only two, two um, factories basically can really produce the best ships that are out there. Okay. Um, yeah. Also take on TPU versus GPU. So TPUs are also sort of getting famous along the yes. They're commercially f- available for users. So what's your take on So, that? yes. Yeah. So uh, I think TPUs is the first step, what we will see in the future. And that is GPU is no longer improving speed, hmm. but we can improve speed by specializing mm-hmm. and making ships more and more specialized for certain kind of neural networks. Mm-hmm. And so what we see in TPUs is already a specialization, a specialized chip 
um, yep. for our current neural networks. <laughs> and um, that works quite well. And what's really great about the TPU, their integration into the network of TPUs, a TPU cluster, is much, much more efficient than a GPU TPU cluster. Pod, as a, they call it, right? I say again? I think they, they call it a TPU pod or something like that. Yes, yes, the TPU pod. Uh, it's very well engineered, very well designed. Mm-hmm. It's very fast. Uh, if you put together GPUs, you will not get that performance. And right. um, GPUs were actually made for gaming and not for neural networks. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, with Tensor Cores, you have like also specialized elements on the GPU, but mm-hmm. it's not through roughly optimized for deep learning. And so we have now the step with the TPU, but the TPU will hit similar limits to the GPU. Mm -hmm. So the next step in computing is really, it moves away from from processing um, everything in parallel with very simple operations. It will Mm -hmm. um, move away. It will still work like that, but what we will have is cache-based processes. So processors okay. that have a large amount of very fast memory, and this memory is 100 times faster than the normal memory that we have on a GPU. Right. And um, what it does, it, it takes up most of the space on the ship. Okay. Uh, but you can have very specialized compute units which do very fast computation. <laughs> uh, the only downside of that is that um, to really utilize these kind of ships you need to have very small models. Okay. And so um, if you look at graph core, which is such a ship, then your model needs to be 300 megabytes. Yeah. And so we need to find ways to train networks that, are, that have a smaller size mm-hmm. to really use, utilize these ships. I think that that's sort of... That'll also cause a like shift in research because right now we're also headed towards like bigger models, huge models, especially with... Excellent yes. and such stuff. Yes. Um, so you can break down bigger models into like smaller pieces, but okay. they need to fit well enough together and they need to be parallelizable, which is not easy. Uh, especially if you look at models like XLNet, they, they are parallelizable to some degree, but for cache-based processes, you would have difficulties. Mm-hmm. So it's not the right architecture for cache-based processes. And um, I mean, you can take the strategy of like TPU scaling up in the data center, but it would be much nicer if you can have a desktop computer um, which is as powerful as a GPU cluster okay. for a particular network. Mm-hmm. And if we can compress transformers yeah. like XLNet into a cache-based version, mm-hmm. then we would have uh, transformers which are 100 times faster. And I have a strong belief that computation enables progress. Yeah. So if you can run ImageNet in 10 minutes, mm-hmm. which we, you would be able to do on a single card of a graph core, if you mm-hmm. have like a model which is small enough to fit into cache, mm-hmm. then it enables, you can do experimentation so fast that you can innovate much more quickly. Yeah, because and, for context yeah. for the viewers, like most of the models, the famous one nowadays take sometimes even weeks to train on GPUs. So. Yes, yes. 
<laughs> so, um, and that's getting problematic. I mean, we're seeing already, if you look at XLNet, it's a really, really big uh, transformer, a pre-trained language model. And yeah. the version that came before XLNet was BERT. BERT was a bit smaller, trained on yeah. less data. And, um, but these models are so huge that it's very difficult to do hyperparameter search. Mm-hmm. And actually, uh, Facebook research came out recently, or actually will come out soon. The results are already published. They show they are better than XLNet mm-hmm. with the BERT style model. They just do the hyperparameter tuning more carefully. And yeah. so that shows you already, we are at the point where we can no longer really say if the model is better than another model, mm-hmm. because we cannot do the hyperparameter search. This is too expensive to do. Yeah. And so... Um, we hit a limit where knowledge about models is very unreliable. We cannot say model X is better than model Y. Because it uh, hasn't been exhaustively researched. Yes. And yeah, the problem is just compute. Um, You need a cluster to do research on these kind of topics, but even the clusters are too slow. And so we... I think I, I strongly believe we need innovation in computing technology. Mm-hmm. And because we have more specialized processes, we need innovation in architectures. The architectures need to be designed for the hardware. Yeah. And the hardware people, they are making a leap of faith. They say, okay, deep learning cannot go on as it is now, but there's no research to support any direction. And so, um, yeah. Um, Graph core, um, yeah, uh, like b- bets on smaller models that in, this too com- in the future we will have smaller models which perform as well. We're already and, seeing um, this in, in, like in, in a marketing format, if, if I may. Uh, for example, Apple says their phone has a new processor that has some compute capability, for example. Yes, yes. Um, I mean, the mobile device market is, it's, you get so much benefit if you can run a neural network on a mobile device and mobile devices are just small. And there you have a similar problem. You can develop a specialized chip for Mm -hmm. a mobile device, but then you need a specialized network to, to, to able to utilize the chip effectively. And um, so, yeah, my current research, um, I worked on this problem. I took this perspective. What kind of networks do we need to have? One perspective is to look at mobile devices and say how we can compress a a dense network down to a sparse network so it can fit into a mobile device. My perspective is more about training very big models like XLNet. Um, Can you, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Can you compress these models down so you can train them not on a GPU cluster, but on a desktop and still okay. be able to do it uh, uh, in, in, a, in a like time, time efficient manner. Can mm-hmm. uh, you, what, what, what I would like to do is enable for everyday researchers to be able to train these big models. I think then we can make much faster progress. We have much more reliable data about where to go. I think right now it's, it's like a number scan. People like to post, oh, this model is better than that. <laughs> but we are not so sure where this performance comes from. Yeah. And yeah. there um, are long dangerous. about calculations, about the money that went into it. And like, I, yes. I think that, yes. that wouldn't be reproducible research in a way because I just have a single 2080 and no way I am going to run a model yes. on. 
Yes, yes. And so I think it's important that we democratize this kind of research, that mm. we enable everyday people to run these kind of models. And that's like, I, th I think also called motivation of my research in general. One is a bit more neuroscience related. One is really like, can we use the hardware in an efficient way? That's awesome. Uh, and also the future hardware. <laughs> Since we're already talk, talking hardware, I'd like to discuss more about that for a li little section. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm really thankful, first of all, to you for the write-up about GPUs that made me pick my hardware. I completely chose my hardware just using that, ah. and, like many people. So first question to you is like, how many GPUs do you have? Because you have benchmarks across all of the variants. So do you have all of uh, them? Sorry, uh, sorry, I didn't get the question. What, what was it? Do you have like all of the NVIDIA GPUs because you do benchmark? Um, yes. So the thing is, if you have the, the deep learning architectures, performance between deep learning architectures differs. Mm -hmm. But if you have one GPU of a certain architecture, it's yeah. quite easy to extrapolate results to a different GPU. So if cool. I have results on the 2080 Ti, mm -hmm. then I sort of know what the performance on the 2080 is. Okay. And uh, I mean, at the University of UW, uh, University of Washington, UW, um, mm -hmm. I uh, have some colleagues and they have all different kind of GPUs. So I uh, asked them if I can run some stuff. So okay. uh, I personally have one, one GPU, but my colleagues have, and with that, um, I can get a good sample and from these samples, I can then extrapolate and also verify the extrapolation. So, um, um, yeah, a lot of people have like a GTX 1080, 1017, that sort of thing. So, yeah. so I can verify, yeah, does this extrapolation make sense? Good. And, um, yeah, that's sort of how I produce the results on my blog post. Makes sense. Um, there's always a bit of variation in the system itself, CPUs and that sort of thing. Yep, yep. And there's variation between tasks. Some tasks are not so well, well designed for certain GPUs and that sort of thing. But mm. I think in general, the re results are quite reliable that, that, mm. that I have, yes. Okay, so uh, also want to ask you, like, do you think since the time you've written the post, because cloud options have definitely gotten somewhat cheaper. So do you think like, is that now a comparable option versus like investing money into a deep learning box? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I think the cloud has many advantages, um, especially if you uh, have like workloads which change over time. So yeah. if you suddenly need to train a big model mm -hmm. or you just need a lot of compute then the cloud is really beneficial. Mm -hmm. um, I like, I mean, it can also be a cheap option if you have a GPU for prototyping. Yeah. And um, so you figure out your model and once you said, oh, I figured it out now, then mm -hmm. you run the model in the cloud faster, do a hyperparameter yeah. search there. That mm -hmm. can be quite efficient in terms of money. But mm -hmm. if you're really using deep learning a lot, then it probably is more cost efficient to really in, uh, invest into a deep learning box. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, you still pay electricity costs. That's like an upkeep that you need to pay and yeah. the initial costs for the GPUs. But if you compare the costs, the cloud can get expensive. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially on uh, AWS, a lot of startups, they're interested in GPUs 
because yeah. they do some like deep learning startup. So that can be expensive. Mm-hmm. And if you look at research on transformers, um, a lot of them use TPUs because they're just faster for this application. Yeah. Uh, but I you also you, see the numbers. The costs, I think you've also you know, done so a comparison between TPU and uh, GPU in a blog post. So I'll also have that. Yes. 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 And uh, I mean, performance TPUs are pretty great, especially if you parallelize them across the network. They're much better than GPUs, okay. uh, but they're also more cost efficient. Um, um, they lack bit versatility and uh, recurrent networks haven't seen many good applications on TPUs mm-hmm. and convolutional networks. They don't seem to be that good. They're really shine for transformers. Um, but it's, it's a great option to have, especially if you need a lot of compute power. The right. TPU part is really powerful. Okay. And um, so I think the place of, for cloud computing is really, you should have uh, own GPU for prototyping, hmm. but then you can scale out or you can scale out for paper deadlines or you can scale out hmm. for very big experiments. And the yeah. cloud is very useful for that. But often you want at least one GPU for prototyping. <laughs> Right. Uh, also for a person investing into a box or maybe Kaggle or hobbyist deep learning, yes. uh, how, how do you suggest they should plan their investment? Like what should they focus mm-hmm. their money on? And I'm, I'm sure based on the comments, you know, like what is the number one mistake that people usually make when investing into a box in your opinion? Yes. Yes. Um, so I think the, 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 the most common mistakes are actually mistakes not related to the GPU. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more like CPU and RAM. Okay. So people are often not very conscious about what do they need? What do they really need for the thing that they want to do? Yeah. And so if you uh, run, uh, if you do Kaggle competitions and you use a lot of scikit-learn, then mm-hmm. the CPU can be very useful. Yeah. Um, if you want to do more deep learning related stuff, the CPU is not that important. Um, in terms of RAM, people often waste uh, money on getting like fast RAM with a lot of like gigahertz. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually not much faster. Um, it's very constrained by the motherboard specifications. Yeah. Uh, if you overclock it, it's very unreliable. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a waste of money to invest in fast RAM. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it also depends on what kind things you do for Kaggle competition, I would like a bit more of RAM just to have a peace of mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, you don't have to optimize your code too much. You can prototype more quickly if you have a lot of RAM. Yeah. Uh, it, it's annoying when you want to try a new model and then you suddenly realize, okay, I need to refactor my entire code mm-hmm. because it uses too much memory. Also, um, Kaggle competitions, that experiment might fail and you will start falling down on the leaderboard. So you want yes. to work fast on it yes um i guess there's always option to start small with a small amount of ram and it's easy to to extend um but yeah with with things like cpu you need to be a bit more careful to spend your money in terms of gpu the top mistakes are really cooling and uh the amount of memory that you get yeah so um, on my blog posts, I have a list of the most cost-efficient GPUs. And mm-hmm. people like to say, oh, this is the most cost-efficient GPU. I get this one. 
but what they often miss is um, how much memory they need to do their things. Yeah. And so for many Kaggle competition, uh, if they're deep learning related, um, you can do very well if you have like eight gigabytes of RAM, that means uh, RTX 2080 and RTX 2070. Right. Um, but if you want to really run state-of-the-art models, and that can be a factor if you want to really be at the top of the competition in Kaggle, for example, yeah. or if you want to do hacks or research, if you want to run state-of-the-art models, if you want to run on ImageNet, some, some domains like medical imaging, they have very large images that can be a problem. So you want to have a lot of memory. And mm-hmm. also if you want to run specific models like transformers, they're usually right. very big. They need a lot of memory. So if you have these kind of cases, you should get uh, 2080 Ti. Okay. Otherwise, probably eight gigabytes of memory is sufficient. You can save a bit of money. Okay. Um, the next mistake is people, if you have two cards next to each other, the yeah. cooling needs to be really good. Mm-hmm. If you have a space in between, then cooling is usually sufficient and you can do, go with any cooling. But yeah. if they're next to each other, especially if you're multi-GPU setup, mm-hmm. then you should pay close attention to cooling. And so at the University of Washington, we experimented a little bit with, with our systems there. Right. And you can have the blower fan GPUs mm-hmm. and the normal fan GPUs. The normal fan GPUs, they block each other and they overheat very quickly. Okay. The, um, the um, blower fan, they have an exhaust at the back okay. and they overheat less quickly, but um, the their um, default temperature is higher. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't improve the performance much of the four GPU system. Okay. So um, what now exists are 2080 Ti's with water cooling or hybrid cooling. Mm-hmm. These are really the best. They have very stable temperatures. Um, and another hack, which I actually did with my system uh, at UW is I have two GPUs and then I have two uh, extenders and I put the uh, GPUs just somewhere else in the case. And so they mounted in the top or below far away from. Yes, yes, yes. And so, um, just the space, I mean, with that sort of, you destroy the airflow within the case. But yeah. people uh, overestimate how big the effect of that is. The really, the main effect is the fans on the GPU and the location of the GPUs or how close they are to each other. If the cooling is obstructed within a four GPU and with extended, you can easily solve this problem. It runs cool and without any problem, you can afford GPUs. Okay. And, uh, What's your take on liquid need- cooling? Uh, you mentioned water cooling. So- your yes. suggestions for that is it important like should we consider that for a two gpu setup or maybe after that and what should we yes. consider when looking into that so as long as you have a space between gpus you don't need any water cooling and you shouldn't get any water cooling it's more expensive and it's mm. less reliable mm. um if you have three or four gpus water cooling and become and can become interesting mm-hmm. um it also depends if you really parallelize models across all GPUs. Yeah. Um, if you share the system with other students, for example, or mm-hmm. other people, and if you do like um, a grid search, often the cooling is sufficient. Mm. Um, if you run a big model, 
the cooling is more important than the small model. And uh, I mean, I'm talking about this because if the GPU is overheated, you can lose about 30% of performance. Yeah. That's just, if you compare to like a CPU, a CPU gives a very fast CPU gives you a boost of like 5% performance for deep learning. So cooling is very important. And so water cooling can really help if you have three or four GPUs. Mm -hmm. um, it gets more complicated the more GPUs you have because you have radiators that need to be distributed in the case. You need to yeah. make sure that you get the right case with the right amount of space and you can actually put the radiator somewhere where it makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then you should have a very fast and reliable system. You should prefer to um, the the all-in-one solutions rather than the custom-built solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, the custom-built solutions can be a mess, can be unreliable. If you've yeah. done it a couple of times, it gets more and more reliable, and then you know how to do it, and it's like good. Uh, but it can be a risk factor, and you should keep that in mind. Yeah. So I, I feel like yeah. that's that's important because not many people even talk about water cooling. I it's it's mentioned in running, but people who even have those water cooled PCs, I don't think they document their approach. Yes, uh, I mean, people, I think, are just afraid of water cooling. It's like, you feel like, oh, there, there, there's like liquid inside, Honestly, oh, something goes wrong. That's that's why I did not consider that, because I felt like it might yes. be insured, but just the coolant will be insured, and not if it leaks over all the components, I wouldn't get those back. Yes, and <laughs> uh, that's, that's a valid concern. And um, I mean, the all-in-one water cooling uh, solutions are a bit more reliable. Mm -hmm. and uh, that helps uh, and I would recommend those okay. uh, and I mean honestly sometimes it's also fine to take a performance hit with air mm -hmm. and not worry about your GPUs mm -hmm. um, so most of my system have been air cooled okay. and usually it works fine because you not always run big models on all of your GPUs you're not always paralyzed across all your GPUs yep. and so you might get like a 30% uh, performance hit mm -hmm. um, when you do that. But uh, most often you run smaller, simple models. Yeah. I mean, as I said, if you do research, you experiment your way up and yeah. only at the very end, you need this very good cooling. And right. so air cooling is often good enough. Um, if you want the perfect performance water cooling. But right. uh, you mentioned in a tweet that, uh, four by four PCI lanes uh, for GPUs are good enough. So uh, I'd like to know more about that. So what research went behind that comment and for, for the audience, uh, GPU runs on something called PCI lanes and it expects 16 PCI lanes to work as they call it in full capacity. So yes, the common misconception that you clear clarify in your blog post is they can work on lesser lanes almost as, as good enough as it yes. was. 16 lanes. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that's another problem or mistake, actually. Um, a lot of people, they're really obsessed about lanes. They want to get the 16 <laughs> lanes, make things really fast. But often you don't need that performance. So you get about one gigabyte of bidirectional performance per PCI lane. So okay. with four lanes, you have four gigabytes per second. Mm -hmm. And to understand really why four lanes are enough for two GPUs, you have to like uh, understand the architecture. And so two GPUs are often, they are paired between a, a PCI switch. And okay. so you have these two, two GPUs and yeah. they can communicate 
um, with each other in a bidirectional manner. Okay. However, if you have now four GPUs, then only one GPU from this side can communicate with one GPU from this side at any one time right. because you have the switch and it's blocking basically the way. What NVIDIA so, calls NVLink, I think, in India. Um, yes, NVLink helps with that. <laughs> it's a, a different system uh, okay. which uh, allows more parallel um, access to compute. Okay. Um, and that can help if you have really a GPU cluster. Mm -hmm. um, but usually, so if you have four by four lanes and two GPUs, you do just one message between GPUs and you have synchronized your entire system. If you have four GPUs, you need at least three messages. And so you need three, three times as much lanes. Okay. And um, so the same is actually two for three GPUs because it's another PCI switch. Mm -hmm. So, um, if you have, um, um, uh, let's say 12 lanes on three GPUs, uh, okay. which you cannot really have, but just as an example, okay. then that would be comparable to have three lanes on two GPUs in terms of speed. Okay. And so four lanes on two GPUs is much faster than, uh, what you usually see, uh, what you have with four GPUs. Okay. So if you have eight lanes for four GPUs, it's much slower than four lanes for two GPUs. Mm -hmm. And this becomes and important because otherwise you would be making investments into an expensive motherboard, a more expensive CPU. Yes. Yes. Yeah. CPUs, especially cheap, cheap CPUs, they often support like 16 lanes. Mm -hmm. And people are afraid because they say, oh, I only have like 16 lanes in total, but I want to have two GPUs and uh, or, or three GPUs. I mean, then again, you need to think about how often do you paralyze, yeah. and uh, is it really important if you get if you have three GPUs if you get the speed up of like two point five or mm. two point zero? So um, you will degrade the performance a bit, but yeah. the use case is not that common. You have to ask yourself how often do I paralyze? How important is it I have maximum performance? Because very similar to water cooling. In code, you'll have bottlenecks in I/O or some places, so yes, might yes. not function at the theoretical limit. Exactly. I mean, you can get these performance gains if your code is optimal, yeah. and that's also one thing to think about. Usually, not all the things are optimal. Often, the bottleneck is somewhere else, and sometimes it's very difficult to fix. And um, <laughs> so. I like to be a bit more practical um, mm -hmm. and rather a bit more cost efficient um, yep. rather than to get the optimal performance. Um, yeah. So people should not obsess so much about lanes. It's not so important. Okay. okay. Uh, also want to ask you, so there are like a wide, wide okay. variety of options when you're buying a GPU, there's different manufacturers, different editions, mm -hmm. gaming editions. So have you tested those and what are your recommendations for those? Yeah. So, the gain and performance that you get is usually from a GPU architecture and a particular ship. Okay. And you don't get performance if you uh, buy like a super clocked GPU. Mm -hmm. They often cost a little bit more. You yeah. say, oh, it has higher numbers. But <laughs> for deep learning, uh, it doesn't matter so much. Um, mm -hmm. So my advice is really the, the, uh, you should just watch the price. Always mm -hmm. get the cheapest GPU and the okay. cooling. So for particular use cases, you want particular cooling and these are, should be the only considerations. Otherwise, always get the cheapest one. Okay. So if you buy an RTX 2080 Ti, get mm -hmm. the cheapest one 
with the cooling that's right for you got it and uh, do you think like to produce great research uh, results do you need like a huge cluster of gpus or is it also possible like to be in the maybe state of the art or like the cream and just use lesser gpus maybe one or two is that possible yeah so um there are research areas where you need a gpu cluster mm-hmm. and it's just these research areas can be extremely important um we talked a bit about xlnet about bird and if you train large uh, transformers you need a lot of compute mm-hmm. and there's no way around it um for some research if you do imagenet on one gpu it's a bit of a pain mm-hmm. uh, if you for gpus it's uh, much 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 more um tor- tolerable to yep. do these long experiments um but there are there's so much research that you can do on one gpu mm-hmm. and it can be really really important and um you can also view it as i said before the solution of using gpu clusters to do research is flawed it <laughs> leads to a domain where computing data is king mm-hmm. and companies dominate everything and results get more and more unreliable and this is dangerous for science we we don't know where we're going yep. it's not very democratic and so with a single gpu you might work on exactly those things mm-hmm. that enable you to do the important the really important research that you do on a gpu cluster mm-hmm. on a single gpu okay but usually if you have a single single gpu you don't work on this big problem mm-hmm. you work on a different problem that would enable you to do this big kind of work um or you just um uh work on a completely different problem some problems are very conceptual a lot mm-hmm. about interpretation mm-hmm. um a lot about different architectures if they work on cipher that says a lot and then you do one experiment on imagenet then then people then people are fine with it um you don't need a gpu cluster it helps for some problems but you don't need it got it uh going back to research you just published a preprint for sparse networks from scratch faster training without losing performance mm-hmm. as the title of the preprint could you tell us more yes. about the idea yes so um the main idea um ca- uh, comes from neuroscience so um there are like two facts uh which and make quite an impression on me and one is that if you look at all the species the brains of the of all different kind of species they're very much limited by calorie intake hmm. so usually what you have uh, if you have an animal it has as many neurons as it can afford without starving to death if it would have more neurons it would not survive because it's just too expensive and um so what that tells you is that brains from an evolutionary point of view they need to be extremely optimized hmm. and uh, a different thing is if you look at primate brains what was found is the more neurons a primate brain has uh, the fewer connections you make between neurons yep. and so this is also part of the efficiency if you would take a human and you would connect all neurons with all neurons then the computation would be so expensive um that you would just starve to death um 
So actually it was, was recently found that a pregnant women, they're very close to the limit where they, um, um, so, so the gut can absorb a certain amount of calories yeah. and uh, you cannot go above that. And pregnant women are very close to the threshold. So okay. if it would be a bit more expensive, our brain, hmm. we wouldn't be able to produce offspring okay. uh, or, or we would need a better gut or mm-hmm. injections of glucose or I don't know. But um, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so what, what, what this tells us is that sparsity is really important. It's really important that we do the computation on the brain with as few connections as possible. And so if you look at deep learning, you see a very sharp contrast. In deep learning, we connect everything with everything. Yep. Um, you process everything with everything. As yes, yes. And um, also if you look at convolution, um, in the brain, if something activates, it has like a cascade of other things that activate. Yeah. But um, if in neural networks, we activate everything. So if you detect the cat, then mm-hmm. a filter for a car will still look over the area where the cat was and says, oh, yeah. maybe there's a car hidden somewhere here. Mm-hmm. And uh, that doesn't make much sense. So okay. what you really want to do is sort of sparsify the mm-hmm. information processing, only process what is important and one aspect is really can we train a neural network with sparse weights so can we remove the weights and um make it still train to a dense performance level and so there has been research which takes a dense neural networks Hmm. then prunes it to be very sparse network which is usually used on mobile devices and they only lose a little bit of performance in that process um but my main interest was, can we make training faster? So can we make it more efficient? Similarly to how the brain is very fast yeah. and very efficient, can we make neural networks faster and more efficient by using sparsity? So can we train neural networks from a sparse configuration and keep it sparse throughout training mm-hmm. and still get a dense performance? And at the same sure. time, yeah just increased training speed and that was the same as it was the main idea behind the project okay we'll just get to the results which as you published are very interesting uh, but could you tell us uh, the algorithm you've developed and uh, how does it work yes so the, the algorithm that i developed uh, it's, it's called sparse learning or i termed it sparse learning mm-hmm. because it uh, it's not sparse learning sparse momentum sorry um, okay. uh, so, um, because it uses momentum and so, um, you can break down this algorithm in three parts, uh, or, um, sparse learning, you can break it down in, in three parts in general. If you have a sparse network, the question is really, which connections do I need? Which connections are useless? Hmm. And so these, these questions, uh, basically say you need to figure out which connections are useless. So you need to prune certain weights and um, if you have batch normalization then on average the input is uh, has always the same magnitude for all weights and uh, that means that you can determine importance of the weights on average by its size or by its magnitude and so a good way to find weights which are useless is just to remove the smallest weights Okay. And that also has been reliable, found to be reliable in the literature. 
And so that's one part of the algorithm. So removing these useless weights, you can look at the smallest weights. And then the question is, where do you put these new weights? So you prune some weights, so you now have a budget in which you can spend somewhere else. And so you now you need to find uh, effective weights. Where are weights effective? Mm-hmm. And what I found that a global, um, global version, if you look at all the, if you have a measure of effect- effectiveness across all layers, mm-hmm. it doesn't really work because you're comparing um, apples with oranges. Every layer is very different. Mm-hmm. And so you need a measure of how important is a layer. Okay. And um, so what I looked at is um, if you have this, this question, how can you determine the importance of a layer? Mm-hmm. Then um, a very closely related question is how can we determine which weights have the potential to be to reduce the error right. the most? Mm-hmm. So which weights, are, weights will be important in the future? It's a, and this question sort of also answers which layers will be important in the future. And so um, one measure for that is if you look at the gradient and uh, over time and stochastic gradient descent, then mm-hmm. it will zigzag around. Yeah. But <laughs> if the local minimum is here, it will maybe look, go like this. Yeah. But if you take the average, then the zigzags will cancel out mm-hmm. with basically a straight line to the minimum. And um, this this method of taking the average of the gradients over time, that's basically momentum. That's also the idea behind momentum. You want to accelerate um, the the gradient towards the direction of the local minimum. Mm -hmm. And that's what you do with averaging. And so this is the momentum and you have the momentum of weights. And then the idea is if you take the average momentum within a layer, then you sort of get the importance of how, on average, how important is the weight in this layer. Mm -hmm. And so when you have this measure, you can compare apples and apples because now we have a measure of how important is the layer or how Mm -hmm. important is the weight in the layer. And um, then you can say, um, if I have 100 weights, then I know I should put 50 weights here, Mm. 20 weights here, 30 weights here. because my importance is proportional to that. Mm-hmm. And so now you distributed the weights to the layers, and now you need to grow at, in certain positions, need to connect certain neurons between layers. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are different ways you can do that. Um, actually, just growing them randomly works already quite well. Okay. But um, what I do in my paper is, I again look at the momentum mm-hmm. of missing weights. So if you have dense inputs and dense um, errors, you have a dense gradient. So even if you have missing weights, you compute a gradient for that. Okay. And so with that, if you take the gradient over time, you get an, also an idea of if this weight would be present, how much would it reduce error? Right. And um, so I use this measure to basically say, okay, these missing weights are the most important ones. They have the most promise. Okay. And I will grow those. Okay. And... Um, yeah, that sort of describes the entire sparse momentum algorithm. Okay. You prune weights with a magnitude, then you determine layer importance by mm-hmm. the average momentum of a layer. Right. And then you redistribute weights within a layer 
according to the momentum of the missing weights Got and it. that's a full algorithm that's an amazing explanation thank you for that uh, yeah, thank you, you also mentioned some very interesting results on a few data sets so could you talk tell us about those and do you think these are extendable to other approaches as well because yes you just use two cnn models uh, if i remember correctly yes um so um i did experiments in computer vision when the project started i actually did experiment on natural language processing tasks especially transformers it was my my focus make transformers fastest but um like in many things um natural language processing is more difficult than computer vision problems because there's so many more classes there's so many more nuances you have a tail distribution so some things are mentioned very rarely in combination but have a yeah. very particular meaning and so my method didn't work quite well on that okay but in computer vision you have more structure um if you have cats if you have 10 different cats they kind of look the same even <laughs> if they're from different pos- uh, positions different angles that sort of thing they yeah. they you can figure out it's a cat um it's it's um probably more difficult if you have like a text of of shakespeare to disentangle the meaning but it's uh, <laughs> easy to get to look at the uh, picture of a cat and sort Makes of get sense. the meaning yeah mm-hmm. um so um so i started experimenting on in computer vision tasks and i look mm-hmm. at mnist cipher 10 and imagenet and they had worked much better and mm-hmm. so as i said before i went through this chain of things i tested on mnist experimented with different methods it worked quite well and when i had like a very good method i tried it on cipher i could mm-hmm. improve things further and then i moved on to imagenet and okay. um yeah so i tried different kind of on mnist i tried like some standard uh, networks which are used often in uh, the literature on compressing uh, neural networks and that's like a uh, linet uh, with with uh, f- um uh, fully connected layers to fully connected layers to hidden layers Yeah and then there's a version with two convolutional layers very simple mm-hmm. um on sci-fi I looked at uh, architectures vgg which is quite standard I looked at elixnet which is not so standard on sci-fi but uh, it's now uh, computers now fast enough that you can train it on that without any problem a wide residual networks I also tried on sci-fi and then uh, a, a normal residual network on imagenet mm-hmm. and So my most thorough results are on cipher 10 and there I can see that I can get um dense performance um for networks between 5 and 50% of any between 5 and 50% of weights to get dense performance. Okay. So for LXNet for example I need between 30 and 50% uh um weights to get dense performance. for vgg it seems to be a very efficient architecture for sparse learning i only need between 5 and 10% on vgg 5% 5 5 and 10% of weights for, for vgg to get also one of get, the like, most uh, like yes. models because it's it's pretty big compared to the recent ones yes yes that's true and um so some wide residual networks work well they only need 5% of weights but some others do not and i currently don't understand the relationship um so wide residual networks it it differs between 5 and 30% of weights that you need 
Okay. Um, but um, if you look at speed up, speed ups that you can gain if you use uh, sparse convolution, uh, which doesn't really exist as of now, but, but which could be developed. I mean, these kind of algorithms haven't been developed because there were no networks, there were no application for the algorithms. Mm. And now with my work, I think there's a potential um, there and maybe people will develop these kind of algorithms. So if you use sparse convolution, what mm. you then can see is you get pretty good speed ups for like wide residual networks which between five and 10 times faster. Okay. For image uh, for AlexNet, it's about three times faster. For, for BGG, oh. about five times faster. So um, that that's pretty good. And and what is curious is if you increase the number of weights, the speed ups don't decrease quickly. And that's okay. because the most important layers are usually also the most computationally expensive. Hmm. And those are usually the first few layers. So right. the first few com uh, convolution layers are the most expensive to compute. Mm -hmm. And they're also the most important. I mean, if you if your first layer is empty, you cannot learn anything. Yeah. And um, so, um, yeah. So if you increase the number of weights, you still get pretty good speed up. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, it seems, yeah, th this kind of training, you can get dense performance and good speed ups uh, if you have the right algorithm. And uh, yeah, th that's sort of the main results. I haven't ca calculated speedups on ImageNet yet. Mm -hmm. um, it might be higher, it might be lower. I'm, I'm not quite sure. My oh. intuition that it's a bit higher um, mm -hmm. because you just have deeper networks with more yeah. parameters. Mm -hmm. And the last layers are very sparse. Okay. Um, and uh, yeah, um, I, I will probably add those experiments and yeah tomorrow there will be the reviews i will get the reviews from the neurops submission uh, quite curious about that <laughs> and, and then we'll see if, if um yeah this, this work will Hopefully be published by, or not maybe by the time this podcast is out out it's already in yes in yes yeah let's let's see i'm hopeful <laughs> Uh, so uh, you've also provided an open source uh, sparse library implementation. Uh, could you tell us about that? And also you've used PyTorch, I believe, in the framework. So yes. the reason for using that and uh, what do you think about its extensibility to other neural net models? Yes. So, um, yeah, software is important to me. I want to write software that people can use they can extend easily and do their own research with, or just try it for fun. Um, and so, the library that I wrote around that I wrote around I wrote around this idea basically. And um, so, it's a simple wrapper around uh, uh, basically any PyTorch neural network. So you can just say, "Oh, make this network sparse," basically with one line of code. Mm -hmm. You need to add a little bit more lines to basically say when to when to uh, use sparse momentum or another sparse algorithm but i was what i also paid attention to was uh, uh, modularity so you can very easily extend um for example redistribution algorithms uh, mm -hmm. or growth algorithms or pruning algorithms and so you can easily add your own algorithm there you don't need to meddle with the library or anything you just need to implement a function that returns a specific tensor or value. Mm -hmm. And then you uh, have your own method, which might be better than sparse momentum and you might be able to publish it. Um, 
Yeah, I used PyTorch. I'm 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 really a big fan of PyTorch. I mm-hmm. think it's very well designed. Um, it's just designed for prototyping. It's designed for research. Uh, it's it's you can do experiments very quickly. And um, yeah, I like to just contribute to that uh, with my sparse le- learning library. I think yeah, I I want to encourage people to really try. And you to use and use PyTorch um, when new hardware will come out, like cache-based hardware. Things might change a little bit, but mm-hmm. right now I would say PyTorch is the best deep learning framework um, for things like TPUs. Probably TensorFlow is better for some publication you want to use TensorFlow. Yeah. And of course, it always has like, this is subjective thing. Some people like TensorFlow better. <laughs> uh, I like yeah. PyTorch better. But um, I think PyTorch is really easy to extend, really easy to work with, really easy to prototype. It's really too easy to understand the code and to um, understand other people's code. And uh, yeah, that's why I chose to work with PyTorch. Got it. Um also, Leslie, Leslie Smith uh, in his interview mentioned that usually when he's thinking of a research idea, he'd like to run the code. So that's also very kind of you that you have the library available. I'll have that link yes. in the description so that uh, our viewers yes. can. Yes, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. Um, reproducing research is important. I mean, we see it with research that it's now so expensive that you need to do GPU clusters. We <laughs> cannot really reproduce it. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Uh, I think. It's a very important part of science to be able to reproduce research, yes. Great. So I also want to shift the discussion to a bit. Uh, you have been very active on Kaggle when uh, you were taking part mm-hmm. on it. You peaked, uh, your rank peaked at 63 when you were active on the platform. So could you tell us more about mm-hmm. your Kaggle experience and uh, what did you do giving Kaggle a shot back in the day? Yeah, for me, um, that was a time when I studied deep learning, but I didn't really have any experience applying it. And I was in a situation at that time, I was like a bit academically isolated. So I didn't have an advisor, didn't work with PhD students. And in that situation, it's very difficult to say, mm-hmm. do I have the skills? Um, what am I missing? Uh, what skills am I lacking? Yeah. And I think Kaggle for me, it was really this is really great, great platform to do just, just that, to challenge yourself, try mm. something practical, and then also compare yourself against others to see Indeed. how good am I? What, what do I need to learn? And also the community is very useful. Um, you can learn so much from others. And uh, yeah, this combination, I think, it's, it makes Kaggle really a great platform to really increase your skill. And at the, I started Kaggle because of that reason. I really wanted to increase my skill in deep learning, also focused on applying deep learning method to Kaggle competitions, which is not always easy. Most competitions are more suited to feature engineering. Hmm. And um, yeah, but it was very insightful. I learned a lot. Got it. So uh, since you start started in the time, like when you gold medal, I was going through a solution of yours where you mentioned you use a, back in the day, and this for context for yeah. the audience is like six years ago, you used a two-layer neural net model along with a rectified linear unit. So do you think since then, like obviously uh, these have gotten more challenging, do you think it's still possible for 
someone to you know get started today and make it to the top 100 yeah i think today i mean i haven't done any kaggle competitions recently but i got a feeling for how it is to run kaggle kaggle competitions when when uh i talked to a couple of other people <laughs> and it it seems much more challenging today it's much more competition and um i mean i think back in the day especially with deep learning people didn't really know how to use it so <laughs> getting a two layer neural network to work on a data set um i mean it was more like how do you convert the inputs to get it right um but For today context, there was no tensorflow no pytorch no yeah, frame back in the day yeah that's true that's true yes yes yeah i i um yeah developed my own neural network code at that time to do that but um Yeah today it's easier to do these things knowledge is more readily available it's mm-hmm. uh, more techniques are more robust yeah um you can train deeper networks without a problem back then no batch normalization exists and that sort of thing um so yeah um i think today you need a lot of knowledge to be able to compete and competition is stiff uh yeah uh, if 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 i would start now i think i would need a long long time to reach mm-hmm. the top 100 uh yeah it wouldn't be easy um i think in the end it's about picking your battles yeah uh for me kaggle was a way to improve myself mm-hmm. and i proved to a certain point and um leaderboards are very useful to say now i have these skills my skills are comparable to these kind of people and yeah. i i talked with people in the community and i learned these things and i think that i sort of have robust skill set mm. and from there for me it was like moving on and i experiment with research and i really like that mm. and you can get a lot out of kaggle but you should be conscious about what you want to get out of kaggle that, that's great advice so uh, also one of the things that people usually do is they like they they are mooc educated so they take an online mm-hmm. course then they either go for kaggle or start applying for jobs so do you think a mooc educated person or how does a mooc educated person become maybe like research oriented or yeah do you think it's possible for them to produce good result or produce good results on kaggle yes um i mean i'm i'm a big fan of moocs um I'm a big fan of alternative routes of education and I think in many aspects MOOCs give you much better skills than university classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you have MOOCs compared with Kaggle, I think you have you get a very powerful up to date and thorough um set of skills that you cannot get it with a university education. Uh, if i would be an employer i would hire mooc people people that did mooc education and uh, did well in kaggle competitions much more readily than a fresh university graduate without any experience yeah but um you have to be realistic uh hmm. i mean that's my mindset but many people in industry they're very conservative they want to see you have that data science degree or math or statistics degree whatever yeah yeah and <laughs> it's disappointing i mean i i i would like our society to be more meritocratic hmm. um people that are good 
they should deserve good jobs. And I don't think that's true. It's, it's mostly about privilege nowadays or still. And I think that will still continue in the future. And it's a sad fact, but I think you need to keep it in mind. So yeah. if you really want to get good, MOOCs and Kaggle are great, but you should also think about some education um, formal education that you get and want uh, get, and especially once you do research, it's important to also get involved with real researchers, experienced yep. researchers. Mm -hmm. You learn a lot from them, but also if you want to move to the next level, yep. you need like recommendation letters. Mm -hmm. uh, that's very important. Uh, I did research on my own, mm -hmm. and um, that is impressive to to a lot of people, but the real research experience I made after that, when I joined a research lab for an internship yeah. and um, uh, there I really gathered the real research experience. Mm -hmm. So um, if you want to get into research, um, try to get involved with research yeah. uh, labs with PhD students. Um, Do you think like if you, yeah. An internship is a good way to get a taste of research. Like if you're not sure, maybe do six months. In yes. Yes. I'm, I'm a big fan of internships. I'm a big fan of taking it slow. Uh, I think people rush into things. <laughs> when I see at UW PhD students with age 21, some, some are 19. Uh, oh, okay. That's, that's, that's crazy. I mean, I think for many things, you should really get a taste for things first and really try them and then decide, yeah, that's what I want to do. And then you can take the next step. And so that's not always easy. It's not easy to get, find a research internship, yeah. but you might be able to find something here and there. And um, I mean, People say you should climb like the career ladder. With internships, it's a bit similar. You can start with yeah. like um, something a little bit research related and that gives you maybe the, the background to do, go into a bit more research related. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you get really good. And that's not only uh, good for you to try out if you really like research mm -hmm. or really like research in industry or really like a position as a research engineer, Mm -hmm. um, or as a data scientist, but it's also a stepping stone that enables you better opportunities. Yep. So if you do research internships and you, you get recommendation letters, you might, might be even able to get a publication out of your research internship. Mm -hmm. And with that, you can compete against other people when you apply for PhDs yep. because it's, it's a very stiff competition nowadays. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a very high bar can yep. be quite frightening. But my advice is take it slow, um, work with researchers, figure out if you want to do it, build your research experience, and then, then go for it. Um, okay. Yeah, take, take your time. You have enough time in life. Um, <laughs> there will be a time where you are in your career and you're working and it gets more and more similar, the experience yep. every day. Mm -hmm. um, if you're young, um, you have the opportunity to do, still do risky things, weird things, things that you cannot do if you have like a family and yeah. 
um, I don't know, uh, need a stable income. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I would encourage people to explore and then settle down. <laughs> that's that's great advice. Uh, also want to ask you, like, uh, there's this explosion in research. So how do you stay on top of uh, machine learning research? For example, you do, you must be reading a lot of papers every day. So how do you yes. stay on top of the huge yes. outflow? Yes, uh, it can be very intimidating with all the things that came out, come out. Um, I think key parts really not what do you read, but what don't you read? So mm-hmm. you need to decide what is enough and yeah. what is sort of, yeah, I don't need to read that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for an example, XLNet is like a big thing, but yeah. I never read the paper. I skimmed the paper, looked <laughs> at the results. I mean, the story is clear. If you have like a big, bigger architecture, a bit more data, if you tweak the architecture a little bit, then it does better, but it's mm-hmm. not surprised. Yeah. You don't need to know the details. Um, that's like one filter that you should apply, but mm-hmm. another filter is more like topic related. So I like to stay up to date on research that is relevant to my current research project. Mm-hmm. And there are some tools which help with that, like a Semantic Scholar released a new tool where you say, okay, these are some research papers relevant to me. Then mm-hmm. it will find very closely related work, which you might miss if you just go along the citation graph. Mm-hmm. So I also like to go along the citation graph, but especially if you work in very dynamic and new areas, that can be yeah. difficult. And tools like Semantic Scholar can help. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I go outside of a very specific domain in my research project, yeah. I usually rely on Twitter and colleagues I just listen to the like the big things sort of, yeah. and I usually don't read papers in full. Okay. I look at their motivation, look at their results. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's interesting and good, then I look at a bit like the method section, but I usually don't dive deep. Like, and um, that I is like, yeah. One of the tweets that, that got viral was uh, Jeff Dean mentioned that go through 10 abstracts over reading one paper in depth. So I think that's, that's what you follow. Yes. Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. I think that number sounds about right. I mean, for me, it's not necessarily the abstract. I mean, I always mm-hmm. read the abstract, but you can read a paper on so many different levels. Yeah. yeah. So, so if you through 10 rather than read one in full, Yes. I mean, for example, for XLNet, I read the abstract, sort of understood like the idea and concepts. Uh, I read uh, Transformer XL before, so I, I had already a bit of background. And so then I read, went straight to the results, compared that, looked at the ablations, and yeah. uh, that was it. Then, then I closed okay. the paper and I knew <laughs> what I had. Um, for some papers, it, it differs. Um, for some papers, you just need to read the abstract. Mm-hmm. Uh, Often you want to skim some graphs, some some tables, um, but uh, yeah, you you want to be selective, and um, yeah, that is sort of. I mean, for things in NLP, natural language processing, uh, I usually rely on Twitter and my colleagues. Yeah. But when I go a bit further outside, deep learning, computer vision, reinforcement learning, these kind of things, mm-hmm. you also want to sort of get the big ideas that are 
running in those fields. And what I really like there is I look at archive sanity in the most popular papers in the last week or last month and uh, go through the, the, the top papers and then I see sort of what is the entire field of deep learning up to, what is machine learning up to, uh, where, where are like bridges made from different areas and uh, that sort of thing. And yeah, I think that combination like detailed view on my own project, yeah. a, little more, a little more high level on NLP and a bit more selective and also high level on deep learning in general, that, that works for me. But um, everyone is different. I, I know some people that read uh, all the new archive papers that come out every day. Well, I mean, not read them, but skim them. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and most of them are not good. Hmm. Uh, of course one uh, hack that I have for twitter is like i create separate lists so a computer vision list of computer vision researchers at nlp yes and whenever yes. i want to find out like what's the best paper happening these days go to that list see what's trending because yes. that's how it's ranked and maybe like in the first 50 tweets just scrolling down i can find a link to archive or some paper yeah that makes sense that makes sense um so i people that i follow on twitter uh, I mean, I didn't work, I don't work with lists, but that's actually a very good strategy. Maybe I should do that. <laughs> um, I, I currently just follow mostly NLP people, uh, okay. try to keep it selective. Mm-hmm. And that sort of keeps me up to date what is going on in NLP. And then I rely on archive sanity to really yeah. filter for other fields. But yeah, maybe it's a good idea to really have these lists in separate areas. I mean, it requires some initial effort, but once you get there, I think it's a quick way to filter down what you really need to know. Yeah. I'll have my list in the description for the audience if they're interested in that. Uh, That's Um, great. (laughs) So before we conclude, this was a great conversation. Uh, What best advice do you have for a beginner who's maybe looking to get their break into deep learning or into deep learning research? Yes. um, That's a good question. I think it really depends on what your goals are. So if you want to be a research engineer, if you want to become a research engineer, or if you want to become a deep learning researcher or a natural language processing researcher or um, a data scientist, you need different kind of skills, different kind of abilities. Um, What's always important is, and that's what people often miss, is you need also the right kind of connections mm. and their privilege plays a big role, but you can also establish connections slowly go through some channels. Yeah. So you might not, if you want to do research, you might not be able to interest some professors mm. in uh, working with you. But if you talk to PhD students um, or other people that do similar work, for example, the fast AI community, I have the feeling that the community is really supportive and these people, they work together even though they don't have a research background, but they work on some research problems. And um, you can see that they have some gaps here and there in their research repertoire, but um, they have very interesting perspectives because they're a bit more isolated. That makes you just think a bit differently and that can be very interesting. Mm-hmm. So um, you I mean, if you don't have the privilege to have like certain connections, um, you can try to get in through these channels, find some friends, 
find go into communities like fast AI or also KO yeah. and go from there. Maybe you can find a link for someone that is on these platforms, but also works in a research lab, a PhD student. Um, yeah. Maybe you can even make a, uh, connection directly with the PhD students and that in the end can lead maybe to an internship mm -hmm. and when you're in an internship then you're very close already working with a professor with postdocs yeah. and that gives you more connections to other other industry labs and um, that's basically also how it worked out for me um, so so slowly working your steps up and mm -hmm. trying to get closer to the goal, you need right. to be realistic. If you want to be a researcher, it's a, it can be a long way. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I took almost 10 years to um, get to the PhD where I am now. Yeah. Uh, but if you, um, I mean, some people, they, they get, um, they, they, they um, panic when they realize, oh, all my other peers, they are much younger than me and they are already advanced much yeah. further. Yeah. Um, uh, some uh, people, they get uncomfortable when they see PhD students, which are age 20 or 21, mm -hmm. because they say, oh, they're so much younger. And when I was so young, I couldn't do these things. Yep. But you need to remind yourself it's not about age. Mm. Uh, age will give you also a certain character, a certain experience and if you take things slow, you do not make things worse. Hmm. You get more well-rounded and um, the experience can pay off a lot. My software, software engineering experience, it's still relevant today. And the work that I did like, uh, uh, or the studies that I did in neuroscience and psychology, they worked out, mm -hmm. uh, they're still relevant today. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, take it slowly, be patient, go step by step. Improve, sure. uh, focus on your skills. So th this is in terms of connections. But if you if you want to become a data scientist, Kaggle might be the right thing. If you want to become a research engineer, maybe you should work on some deep learning hacks or um, some interesting projects. If you want to be a researcher, you need to do a bit more research. You can get some initial skills from Kaggle and so forth. Yeah. But at some point, you should focus on research and. It's a complicated process. It's a very noisy process. It's often <laughs> it's a very unfair process. Yeah. Um, but um, you can try to make the best mm. out of the position where you are right now. And often if you are patient, you can get to some point where you can be quite satisfied and get at least a part of it, what, what you wanted to do. So, yeah. Awesome. That's, that's amazing advice. And thank you for the super amazing conversation before we end the call uh, could you maybe point us to a few platforms to follow your work where are you most active on uh, yeah um, uh, thank you for doing this interview it was, was really great um, I mean platforms uh, from, for me it's just on Twitter uh, um, you can follow me on Twitter Tim underscore Detmers and uh, yeah otherwise just my blog um, okay. um, usually on these two platforms you will see like what I'm up to, what, what I'm thinking about. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And thanks again for, for doing this. It was, was a really great pleasure uh, sure to have this interview with you. Thanks again for joining me and for all the amazing contributions that you make to your blog and also to the research community. Yeah, thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to give it a review or feel free to shoot me a message. You can find all of the social media links in the description. If you like the show, please subscribe and tune in each week to Chai Time Data Science.